On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, you have probably watched the show Making a Murderer or The Staircase, or you've watched Dateline NBC or 2020, or any innumerable crime drama movies or documentaries, and you've probably enjoyed them. You've found them quite interesting. So why are people around here so bent out of shape then about a proposed documentary about Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo? Because even the mayor of St. Catharines is saying, no, no, can't touch that one. My question is, and we're going to talk about it, why is that one off limits, but all the other crimes, all the other murders, we're okay with? We'll discuss that one. Also, filming in Hamilton. We are trying to be a huge hub for the film industry now, building a new big studio, but is there such a thing as a film shoot that is too big for this city? And later on, Don Robertson drops by to talk a little, a little bit of sports. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are chatting about the outrage that seems to be around this proposal or this idea that the CBC is or was or might put together a documentary on the 25th anniversary of the Paul Bernardo Carla Homolka story. That's coming up, as in the anniversary is coming up. And a number of people, including the mayor of St. Catharines, outraged by this, saying, no, you can't do this. You can't give these people a platform. You can't reintroduce them to the public sphere. We don't want to somehow glorify this or make this into entertainment. And I get that. I absolutely get that. What I'm struggling with is, okay, then what about all the other true crime stories, true crime docudramas, documentaries, series, whatever. What about all of those? What, what separates this? Why is this story? Why are these victims? And it is entirely tragic. In no way are we saying somehow that the victims here are not victims. It's, it's one of the, if not the worst story we've heard of around here anyway. But I would think that to the other families, when you go on Netflix or watch Dateline or watch 2020 or all the rest, I would think that in all those cases, to the families of the victims in those stories, it's equally tragic. It's equally horrendous. Their pain is equally as great. So are we not being entirely hypocritical to say this story this story you can't touch because it's too much. It's, it, it's, it's, it was here. It was local. It was one of us. It was two of us. This one you can't do because this is out of bounds. But go ahead and watch all episodes of Making a Murderer and have a great evening. Get your popcorn and your Chablis and watch. No, where is, is that is an entirely hypocritical position that we seem to be taking. Seems to me that we either have to come to the conclusion that we are going to say, you know, all true crime stories are fair game, including the ones that are close to home where we remember it and it hurt. It was, it was very emotional. We either have to throw open the gates and say all is fair, or we have to say, um, no, you know what? We, we got we to gotta wean ourselves off the true crime genre because look, right now, and I just, I spent literally three minutes going on Netflix today and wrote down just a few. And these are enormously popular Netflix shows, Making a Murderer. That was, it's one of the biggest shows Netflix has ever had, according to their numbers. And they don't release their numbers publicly, but just from the, the feedback. One of, they put out a sequel to it. Making a Murderer was enormous. It is a story about an innocent young woman who went missing and was killed. 
She was murdered. I think to her family, that pain is real, every bit as real as any other crime to their victims. But here we say with that one, we go, oh, what a great series. Oh, can they do a sequel? I need to see more of that. What a compelling story. That one, we don't seem to have any problem wrapping our heads around the fact that there was a victim because it's a great story. Here we say, well, no, you can't do this. The disappearance of Madeline McCann, who was, I believe that was over in Britain. I haven't even watched that one yet. But a young girl who is still missing and presumed dead. Manhunt Unabomber, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, who blew up all kinds of people and killed people. To their families, to the victims' families, I don't think that they look at this and go, oh, you know what? No, it's, that's okay. We, we're over it. Make all the entertainment you want from our grief. But the story here, oh no, don't touch that one because that's very raw. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Mindhunter, The Keepers, The Staircase, Confessions of a Killer, The Ted Bundy Tapes, I Am a Killer, Abducted in Plain Sight. Shall I go on? That's from three minutes, just looking down the list. I am positive that to Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman's families, the loss of their loved ones in the O.J. Simpson case is not a frivolous thing, and yet... Nobody seemed to have any kind of problem. Nobody had any kind of problem with endless O.J. Simpson stuff, and including a recent, what was it, eight-part series, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Where was, the, where was the outrage about that? We didn't have any problem with that. So I, I'm, I'm, again, 2020, every single night on TV, there's a 2020 or a Dateline or something else. And then I'm not, not even touching on the movies, the fictional movies that are made from, inspired by true crime, Zodiac and Helter Skelter and Foxcatcher and on and on and on. There's even a new one creating John Benet. Remember John Benet Ramsey? There's one about, there's one about the youth of Jeffrey Dahmer, his upbringing. Like, so my point is this, if we are going to be screaming about making a documentary about Bernardo and Homolka. That's fine. That's, uh, that is fine. If that's the position you wish to take, I can understand that. I can sympathize with that. I can hear your argument. I can get it. But I think you need to be equally screaming and yelling and making a fuss about all these other ones that are equally as painful to the victims' families and equally were as traumatic to the community. If you don't think that the Ted Bundy situation was traumatic to that community. Come on. Making a murderer. Come on. Too close to home. All those other stories that we seem to have no problem with, they all had homes. The girls were young. Yeah, I, 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 again, this is not a lack of sympathy to the Bernardo and Homolka families. This is to me simply saying, why is this one different? I don't quite understand how we have decided that we're fine to be entertained buy this stuff elsewhere, but when it's here, oh, no, 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 no. For consistency, to not be hypocritical, you have to either decide you're not touching any of this stuff, and therefore there should be nothing done on this, or you're saying, "Mm, if I'm going to be consistent, and if I watch that other stuff, and if I'm okay, and if I don't make a fuss about it, I really can't make a fuss about this. Seems to me, anyway. I don't get it. I I don't understand how we delineate and how we draw the difference. It's all tragic. 
And anyone who would argue against the Hamolka and Bernardo and the car, uh, that one, if you watch any of these other true crime things, it's pretty hypocritical. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about filming, movie filming, TV filming, that kind of thing in the city of Hamilton. We are making a push in this city to be a bigger hub for this. In fact, a big news, 500,000 square foot, 100 million or 10, $100 million studio is being built in the West Harbor area. But is there such a thing as a shoot that is too big? Well, Jonathan Matthews is a location manager. He does a lot of work with TV and movie and he has proposed, well, Jonathan, why don't you without, I mean, I don't know how much of this you can actually discuss. So I, we don't need the plot and all the rest, but what would this shoot if you were going to do it? Cause it's a big one. What would it be requiring? Well, it requires um, the use of uh, certain areas, as you had mentioned, Barton Street. Um, but, I mean, I just want to say right off the hop here that, you know, there's there's a very supportive uh, arm of the city of Hamilton that is really great with us in the film industry, and that's the Hamilton Film and Television Office. And i got to say that, you know, as you've mentioned, Scott, many times on your show with film, the increase in the level of filming in Hamilton, it has risen quite dramatically over the last few years. So, you know, the city's main priority is to, you know, offer services to its residents and its businesses and just the regular flow and day-to-day business that, you know, a city offers, uh, you know, the tax-paying folks of Hamilton. So, you know, the challenges that they face, they want the films, um, but there is a reality, which, you know, there's bus routes. There's, uh, there are events that go on in a city. Uh, it's not a backlot for uh, a film company. So it's, it's a bit of a push-you-pull-me situation. We, we look for solutions. We look for the common ground where everybody can be served fairly and get what they need at the end of the day. Obviously, my priority is servicing my producer and the needs of my director and, and what it is that they need as far as getting the shot uh, for, for the scenes in the movie. But at the end of the day, there is, a, there is the reality that, you know, Hamilton buses run. Um, and, and things go on in the city of Hamilton that have nothing to do with film. So we like to look for a way to coexist and look for a common ground where everybody at the end of the day is happy. Hamilton benefits economically. We benefit artistically. And everybody goes home happy and safe. This would be, though, and, and so it's a valid point. I mean, what you're saying, it is a, I like the push-me-pull-you idea you throw out there. But this, what you're proposing or what they're looking for this time, this is a big one. This, I, I know that they had back in, I think it was 2007, they shut down a block or two of Main Street to do some shooting for the Hulk. And they had explosions and it was at night and everything else. This, this would be probably even bigger than that then. Well, it's not as it's not bigger than that financially speaking. I think the ask that uh, you know a production like ours is asking for is a little bit bigger than usual. I mean, you know, asking to control a, a major arterial road in the middle of the day in the middle of the week. I, I mean, it's it's kind of outlandish in some senses. Uh, you know, wh- wh- where do the buses go? How do they divert? How do uh, you know people get around that normally use that route? So when I use the example of a push, you pull me. Well, sometimes we have to change our schedule. I mean, it's not like we go to the city and we say, this is the way it has to be. And, you know, if you don't like it, well, geez, we're going to go find somewhere else to film. That may be the case if, if, you know, we can't change the actor's availability. We can't change, you know, the equipment rentals and whatnot. Maybe we do have to find another place. But the look is fantastic on Barton and Cannon, any of those type of streets that are in the northern end of, of Hamilton. Um, so we look for solutions. And, uh, you know, I want to be really clear and reiterate, uh, 
The city of Hamilton's film and television office has been nothing but helpful, and we are currently working on looking for a solution. And that may mean, you know, altering our schedule to say when the traffic flow is a little bit less at night than it is in, you know, the middle of a day. Jonathan, does it, though, affect down the road? Because I keep going back to this. We've got this new studio that's being built. There's a huge push on to really make this an impactful part of our local economy. Mm-hmm. Does it help if they were to say, you know what, we're going to find a way to do this? Does that does the word of that start to filter around through the filming community that says, you know what, they will do anything to make this work? So bring your business to Hamilton. Well, you know what, it's like it's like dealing with a young child as a parent. You give them an inch, they take a mile, and I think the same thing can be said about the film industry. So. While you talk about this studio that's being built and the plans for it in Hamilton, which is fantastic, there's a huge difference between filming in a studio and filming on the streets of a you know living, active city, such as the size of Hamilton. It's not a small town. It, it, it has an economy with or without the film industry being there. The film industry is just an added component to their economic mix, which everyone thinks is great, and I fully support it, of course. I'm a little biased. But, you know, when they film in the studio, they're filming scenes that are contained to the studio and the studio property. When the films go out on the road or on location, as we say, we have to coexist with, you know, the existing businesses and flow of the business in Hamilton. Otherwise, uh, I mean, you know, just build a back lot and uh, we would have to film everything there. Just so people understand what we're talking about here, how long would something like this take? If you were going to have Barton Street and do what you were really ideally in a utopian world hoping to do, how long would Barton Street be shut down for? Well, just in the little area that we're asking about, yeah. and you know, the day it's a it's a, it's it's a one day shoot that that we're looking at doing, um, and then we've got other days that we're going to be filming uh, in other areas of the city. I think there's three, we've got a total of three to four days in Hamilton, um, you know, in in our schedule. So it would be it would be a day, and you know, when you look at it from you know corridor management's point of view, or um, you know, just the BIA in that area. I mean, closing it down and not having buses going through there on the regular schedule, that's just, that, that's a non-starter. That's not going to happen. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not fair to even ask that question. So we have to look for an alternative solution. And all I look for is, you know, a group of people, which I have at the Hamilton Film and Television Office, that are willing to talk about solutions. Jonathan Matthews, who, by the way, is a location manager, not location scout. I demoted you accidentally. Yeah, that's okay. I, uh, I, 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 I like the demotion sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's, it's a great topic, what we should do or not do for these things, but I appreciate you taking some time to join us today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate your support. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So let me bring in Don Robertson again. Make sure his mic is on. Um... I had a great conversation on the last week up at the cottage with my son about a particular topic. And I want to hear from you on this one. We were chatting about NCAA athletes, college athletes in general, but especially in the States because of the huge amounts of money that NCAA athletics generate. Do you believe that college athletes should be paid for their services? Because right now they're not. In fact, the NCAA is very strict about this. You cannot earn money from anything to do with your performance. What do you think? It depends on how you define payment. Well, the rule is right now you can't get anything. No, no, I understand. Nothing. Like uh, OHL hockey players get room and board and and some expense money. And scholarship money. And scholarship money. 
and um, and they're they are then barred from being able to go to the NCAA because they've received payment to play. And that's that's a bar that's a ban from the NCAA saying you Correct. can't come here now. That's right. So thanks for clarifying. No, no, it's not the OHL saying you can't go. No, it's the NCAA right. saying you can't come. So what the NCAA say is we don't pay our athletes, but they do exactly what the OHL do, and it's considered payment. Well, and that's the argument a lot of and people say, is that you are being paid. You're getting room and board well, see, in your that, university education. That would be my argument. Harvard have a football team. I'm thinking it's 50, 60 grand a year to go to Harvard. Except, let me jump in for one second, only not because just before. The Ivy League schools don't give scholarships for athletics. All right, so I picked a bad school. No, no, but but so but all the other ones. Let's say you're going wherever. Alabama. You're, Alabama. You're getting a forty thousand, thirty thousand dollar a year. So you get package. You get your free room and board. Yep. I'm sure you get a very luxurious meal package because they're going to feed these big galoots all you can eat. They need, right? And you get four years. Yep. So the package is going to be worth one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars that they're giving you. Tell me that's not pay. It they is, would well, be it, making it, more money than a minor pro hockey player would be making in the East Coast Hockey League. And uh, they would be making more money or as much money as a lot of the Hamilton Forge uh, soccer players. Like, I, you got you got to define – they conveniently don't define that as payment. I would think it is. See, I would have no issue – and the discussion went back and forth a couple different ways, and I'm generally with you on that, that you are receiving a payment. Sure you are. Because if someone just went to university and had to pay their way, they're not doing it for free. Well, if your son has to go to the same school as the football player in Alabama. he's He's got big university debts when he comes somebody's out. Somebody's paying, right? So now I think part of the argument that a lot of people make, and perhaps it was uh, what you guys were talking about, is – that when you're drawing in Michigan 103,000 people and you're generating income off jersey sales and everything else, it's a business. Mm -hmm. And I think the university's argument is, yes, the football program does very well. Even the hockey program does very well. And that pays for our wrestling program. It pays for... Libraries sometimes. Yeah, it pays for the infrastructure of the schools. And that's what we have to do with the money. We'll let you come here for free and we'll take very good care of you. That's all you get. See, I wouldn't, uh, the, the, the only problem I have with the NCAA's rules, which again, you are getting something for it, is that they do have such strict rules that in many cases you can't even work a part-time job as well to have a little bit of money for the side. You're getting your university paid for, that's clear, but the other stuff, you're, it's off limits. And I, I, there's two things that I would say. One possibility is I'd be okay if, for example, let's say you're a football player, at the end of your four years, if you are not playing professional football, that we will give you X dollars on your way out because you contributed to the school, you contributed to... Whatever. So let's say you're going to Alabama and the revenues from the football program are X. We will give you a minuscule percentage and it might work out to $20,000 on your way out the door if you don't sign a professional football contract. Because you don't need to pay that twenty or 25000 to the guys who just signed a multi-million no. dollar deal. So the guys who are the grunts who have grinded it out for four years with no hope they're ever going to go pro, 
they at least get a little help to get started on the way up. That would be one idea. The other one is, what about the idea, and this one was much more controversial, I suppose, or contentious. I'm trying to think of the last guy who was a massive individual star in college football. Let's go with Johnny Manziel, even though he flamed out in the pros. But when he was at Texas A&M, Johnny Manziel was selling tens of thousands of shirts that had Manziel on the back in number two. What if the guys like that were to get a small percentage of the memorabilia, the merchandise with their likeness or their name that is sold? I don't think the NCAA want to have the thin edge of the wedge slide in there. No, they clearly don't. And I think anybody that thinks that, using Johnny Manziel as an example, thinks that his parents, who probably never missed a game, had to pay a dime to fly in or fly to watch him play or pay for a hotel room, and some of the alumni aren't topping things up. Some of these guys drive pretty fancy cars Mm -hmm. and don't come from families that have the means to do that. Agreed. Like it's... uh, But do you think it would stop that if they had some legitimate money? I don't think the NCAA are running it. Here we go, you know. No, I don't think they're running it, but I think they're turning a blind eye to it. No, no, In no. some cases. No, they, no, but they're, they're talking, when you're talking about reimbursing the players to any extent at all, the NCAA control that. Now, the alumni do a wonderful job of going to the games and they want to win. And, you know, all of a sudden that young Radley kid from Hamilton could be a star running back for us. He's got to pick a school. And next thing you know, one of the alumni guys that's worth multi-million dollars is coming up talking to mom and dad and say, I'm going to make sure you never miss a game and here's what we're going to do. And I think your son should have a car to drive in the summertime. I believe that goes on all the time. Which is not legal, which is not technically legal by the rules. And what I'm saying is if you- I didn't say it was. I'm telling you, I think it goes on. It does go on. Of course it it does. does. Of course it does. But if you were to then say to that Johnny Manziel example, that we're going to give you half a percent, not a huge amount, but half a percent- of every, of the value of every Manziel shirt that is sold or hat or whatever else might add up to a hundred grand or 150 grand over the course of your career. If you're a huge star, does that take some of that lure of the alumni thing away? I don't know. You, well, you, I don't know. The, you know, the argument I use. And I'd love to see that in Canada too, the argu- although it almost never happens. I know. The, uh, we'll t- we can talk about Canada in a second, but the, the argument that I use so many times when we talk about stuff like this. When you're not sure what it is, it's the money. Always. And if you're not convinced it's the money, go back and look at it again because it's the money. money. (laughs) And it's the NCAA would have to make an exemption and none of them were open Pandora's box. They are keeping all the money. And if you want to play for Alabama and you want to come out and you want to play in front of the greatest fans in NCAA fans in North America, then you got to play here. Would it not help though, if you did that, would it not help balance out some of the programs? And I'll tell you why, because if you go to Alabama, you go to Alabama and you can win. That's a lure for sure. Yep. But if you're a superstar coming out of high school and you're going to be one of eight guys on Alabama, that's a superstar. That's only, the fans are going to buy one of eight different shirts. They're not buying all eight, most of them. But if I go to Bucky Joe's University, I may be the one guy who sells all the shirts and that means more legitimate revenue coming in to me. And therefore I'll decide that I think I'm going to go to that school, which 
it, I don't know if it would be enough of a lure, but it may spread the wealth a little bit for some of these guys. So you get some of the superstars not all choosing to go to the same five or six schools. I think the NCAA universities love it exactly the way it is, and their math mathematicians are doing a wonderful job saying the football program is generating $23 million a year. As soon as you start giving any of it back to the players, we've lost all credibility. Let the alumni keep paying them under the table. And... You do, as you mentioned, part of the challenge is you then have to do it with every program. Well, that's... But that said, how many people are buying wrestling singlets with the wrestlers' names on it? Mom or tennis? Yeah, exactly. So you're not really... You, you, yeah, you're offering the same program, but you're really not going to have to spend the money. And I'll bet that's the argument, you know. Um, I think about golf. I think about Mac Hughes playing at Kent State. I, I can't imagine the crowds to come and watch them play or immense because I don't know if they And have. what are you going to buy that says Mac Hughes on the hat, maybe? That's what I mean. So I think as soon as they get pushed, and they've probably used this argument numerous times, okay, if we're going to have to pay the players in the big sports that make us the big money, you pick the 10 sports we're dropping. And that's when the board of directors say, no, no, we have to be competitive in badminton. We have to be competitive in wrestling. We can't just be selective, or all the schools will do that, and then there'll be no wrestling programs at all. And that would only heartbreak the wrestling program fans. But And the badminton team. And the badminton team. Let's take a break. Back after this. Stay with us. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.